Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Sebastian Ruder. Sebastian is a PhD student studying natural language processing at the National University of Ireland, as well as a research scientist at Alien. Sebastian, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Uh, Hey, Sam. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about having you on the show. We've been trying to coordinate this for a while. And so thank you once again. Now, you've been doing some really interesting work at kind of the intersection of deep learning and natural language processing that I'm looking forward to diving into. But before we do that, I'd love to learn a bit about your background. You've been studying natural language processing and computational linguistics in particular since undergrad days. Uh, how, how did you get interested and into this field of study? Yeah, so uh, yeah, so, so as you said, I did my undergrad in um, computational linguistics at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. And um, computational linguistics really is still it's quite a um, s- small field, or at least when I was studying that, there wasn't that much uh, interest in it and so how kind of how i initially got into that was that i was um kind of during high school really interested in both um mathematics and languages as well so i really liked kind of learning different languages but um, at the same time kind of the analytical side of math really appealed me uh, appealed to me um and so i really was looking for something that uh, like for some uh, fields that where I could manage to combine both those um, maybe quite different areas, and then in doing research, I really found that um, yeah, computational linguistics was really the field which um, is really at the intersection of um, yeah, like computer science and linguistics. And so for me, I uh, tried that out and really seemed to be the the perfect um, fit fit for me personally. And um, a lot of the uh, kind of my classmates at that time, what I really liked about um, computational linguistics was that it seemed to, because you kind of need such a, um, like a peculiar set of interests. Um, so there were um, a lot of people in in that subject um, with like a variety of different interests, um, um, people who were interested in kind of other things, social sciences, psycholinguistics as well. So we really had kind of a very um, wide variety, broad set of backgrounds. And I think that made um, studying and working in the field um, particularly interesting for me as well. Tell us a little bit about your graduate work. And uh, yeah, so I, I did um, kind of the uh, undergrad in that in that there, and then afterwards I was really um, looking for. Um, I really wanted to stay in the field as well, but I was looking for to to get some industry um, experience first. Um, but then, in kind of researching for a job, I um, came across a, a program, um, kind of an industrial PhD program, where you could combine um, research and um, kind of industry work as well. And that really um, appealed to me. And um, yeah, I decided to to go in that direction um, consequently. And then doing my graduate work, I was really looking for something. Um, initially, I started working on kind of a lot of the applications of NLP. So um, as it's as it's often used in uh, in uh, in the industry setting, uh, like working on different applications of text um, classification, like sentiment analysis or different forms of information extraction, um, and then kind of working on those very downstream tasks, um, I realized that actually the the most um, kind of the challenge that permeated those or what was really at the heart of solving them um, was really because we had to. Um, create text notification um, applications for a lot of different domains, different languages, um, different data from different customers as well. Um, so I really realized that um, actually we, um, in order to solve those challenges better, we actually need to have better methods and better algorithms to learn from limited amounts of label data. Um, so really having either models that analyze better or better ways to learn from either distant or uh, distant supervision or from unlabeled data um, um, too. So um, the, this kind of idea of how can we more efficiently either use label data or how can we learn from additional sources of supervision um, has really driven a lot of my interest and uh, really a lot of my uh, graduate work. And you're you're finishing up your PhD kind of any day now, right? You're on your last year? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, my last year, so I'm currently in the process of just writing up uh, my thesis and putting the, those different projects on which I worked on uh, together, essentially. And I guess the last background question, you you are also working as a research scientist at Alien, which it sounds like is through this industrial PhD program? Uh, yeah, exactly. And what does Alien do? Uh, so Alien is focused, so it's a, um, an, a natural language processing startup, um, which is mainly focused on um, analyzing and providing services around news. Um, so we have some um, kind of a, a different number of products, one which aims at aggregating news and enriching news with different forms of um, kind of semantic information like um, entities, but also uh, relations um, and so uh, and sentiment, so doing things like named entity recognition, anti-linking um, sentiment analysis around those. Um, and then um, there's kind of a separate set of services which are which developers can integrate into their own applications to kind of use NLP in, in their own services. Um, and then finally, there's, um, yeah, we also do a fair, fair amount of consulting, so developing kind of specialized applications for uh, particular customers. Okay, very cool. Um, and so maybe to kind of dive into some of your uh, some of your work in NLP, you recently wrote, I think, on your blog a post about kind of the history of natural language processing from, from your perspective. Maybe um, kind of walk us through the you know, maybe not the full history, but kind of the the, the interesting recent uh, historical developments in the field. Uh, sure. Yeah. So that that blog post kind of arose um, in conjunction or as a byproduct of a session on natural language processing that we organized at the um, Deep Learning Indapa, which is kind of a um, a big um, initiative, um, kind of a summer school like event in South Africa that kind of sought to bring together and strengthen the African machine learning community. Um, and for a session on natural language processing, we essentially wanted to give kind of both um, beginners as well as uh, maybe people who've already worked with NLP um, an overview of maybe some of the most important milestones that are still um, relevant today or that they can still, um, like knowing them would still kind of help them tackle uh, ongoing challenges. Um, and in compiling this um, uh, kind of this overview, um, Herman Camper, with uh, who uh, co-organized the session with me, we essentially started out because um, we really wanted to have uh, to get something that not only reflects our opinion but also some opinions of uh, a larger set of experts. We started out just um, sending emails to a number of uh, experts NLP just to get a bit more um, um, uh, more suggestions and more ideas. Um, and then essentially we compiled kind of the eight milestones that were mentioned and then we found relevant into a list here. And um, yeah, and so just because um, the main kind of category of methods that are currently being used in NLP at this point are really mostly using neural network-based approaches. Um, so because of that, we mainly focused on kind of approaches um, or milestones that um, have relevance to that. Um, although in the post, there's also a lot of other um, kind of more traditional milestones that led up to um, that research and which kind of um, a lot of research later on is, is building on. Um, yeah, so to cut things short, um, essentially the milestones we arrived at were um, um, kind of the first uh, neural language models uh, that were proposed in 2001, um, kind of as a something that has been um, in many different ways um, kind of built upon and uh, or co-opted by subsequent approaches um, because a lot of different tasks like sequence to sequence uh, learning or even learning word embeddings can be expressed as some sort of variation of um, just doing language modeling. Um, then something that is um, becoming more prevalent these days um, is multitask learning, which was first proposed uh, for NLP in 2008 um, as kind of a, a very um, milestone, very seminal paper of Colbert and Weston. Um, and that paper also got the Test of Time Award at um, ICML this year. Um, and then probably and one of the... What's that paper called? Uh, yeah, so it's like a unified architecture of uh, for natural language processing, I think. Uh, oh yeah, deep neural networks with multitask learning. I think that's the full title. Yeah, so so that's definitely, uh, if you haven't read that paper yet, that's really worth reading. Um, I'm surprised to hear that one was 10 years ago. Multitask learning seems to be 
you know, just getting popular. Uh, well, I, I should say I'm reading a lot more about it over the past, you know, maybe six to nine months. So in, in that paper in particular, that introduced um, kind of a lot of different techniques like using um, CNNs for text, for instance, or even using something uh, like um, unsupervised learning of word embeddings. That was in 2008. And only about yeah, five years later, people were really starting to use word embeddings. And, and even nowadays, um, yeah, so now like 10 years later, people are actually really starting to pick up uh, multitask learning. So in many ways, that that particular paper was um, kind of a, a bit ahead of its time and not really widely um, kind of regarded or um, uh, yeah, not a lot of people kind of took inspiration from, from that paper at that time. And then kind of probably what most of the experts we were talking to mentioned really as one of the biggest recent milestones was the use of um, uh, word embeddings that were pre-trained and learned um, in an unsupervised way on a large corpus. So that really started out with um, Word2Vec um, and kind of a whole separate branch of research that had kicked off of really um, trying to better understand um, what these word embeddings capture. And word embeddings really are still yeah, very widely used. Even Word2Vec is still um, often used in, in papers these days. And, and then kind of the um, the, the last milestones we mentioned uh, were essentially just the more prevalent use of using neural networks for NLP and mainly then kind of in three different types. So essentially uh, the main types people are using these days are recurrent neural networks and mainly these uh, long short, long short term memory networks, um, uh, which are kind of a, um, a modification on this uh, classic recurrent neural network. Um, then Convolutional neural networks have have been proposed for NLP and also used in particular for um, so particularly for some text classification tasks like sentiment analysis. Um, uh, they have been used quite often and now more recently um, also for different tasks like uh, machine translation, for instance, because people have realized that using these convolutions you can actually um, capture more efficiently um, long term uh, dependencies in your data by uh, using kind of wider receptive fields with uh, dilated convolutions in your models. Um, so there have been there have been some recent um, CNN-based models for machine translation. Um, and then one particular category that I find quite interesting in LP is that you have, um, because linguistically, if you look at a sentence, um, it really, um, it, a sentence can be kind of split up hierarchically. So you have uh, words or e even like going on the subword level, you have different morphemes that compose into a word. And then you have words that form different clauses or, or chunks in a sentence. Um, so instead of processing a sentence sequentially, you can have models that take as input or act upon uh, this tree structure as well. Um, and, and these have been kind of called historically uh, like recursive neural networks because they're kind of recursively bottom, from the bottom up to so starting from the individual words uh, builds the representation of the entire sentence um, using some sort of composition function. Um, and more recently, they're also called uh, tree RNNs or tree LSTMs. So you can have an, an, an LSTM that doesn't act on a sequence, but on, on an entire tree. How much are those used and you know how well do they work? Yeah, so it really depends on the kind of tasks uh, you use. So they can be kind of useful if you want to, um, for instance, incorporate. So for um, machine translation, some of these um, some modifications using um, these kind of tree-based methods have been proposed essentially to incorporate it a bit more um, syntactic structure in, into the model. So just to make it a bit easier for the model to model this type of structure, which helps um, when translating into certain uh, languages. Or maybe if you translate from uh, one language where for instance, the uh, verb comes, uh, um, so where the object comes first um, to a language where this, uh, where the position of um, object uh, is reversed, for, for instance. So in, in some sense, uh, these can help you model uh, yeah, some syntactic relations and um, or yeah, another task, like for sentiment, there's been some data sets where you can have um, kind of supervision at the word level where these, uh, for which task these have been originally proposed. So there have been a few things in, in general still, if you have like an arbitrary NLP task, probably like a, a bidirectional LSTM will still get you further probably. Um, 
but I would guess, or I really hope to see, I like, uh, I personally would hope to see more of these um, models that can actually incorporate some linguistic information in kind of uh, as a future direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this maybe, while it's maybe not the most um, performant um, model yet, um, I think it's really a kind of useful way or useful um, kind of um, method or kind of class of methods to, to think about. Yeah. And more recently, you can have um, um, people have started using um, kind of graph convolutional networks, which basically apply like a, a scene and the convolution operation on uh, on this tree as well. Uh, and they've shown some good results for, yeah, for tasks where you have some dependencies like semantic row labeling, for instance. Like semantic what? Like um, semantic row labeling. Row um, labeling? Which is... Uh, yeah, which is kind of a, a classic um, NLP task and basically a form of, so it's also, people also refer to it as um, shallow semantic parsing. And it essentially, um, yeah, comes kind of from a, and it has like an underlying theory in that you have different um, frames um, of uh, sentences. So depending what ver- verbs uh, you use, um, each verb would evoke a different frame. Um, and then you would essentially um, try to label the arguments of that verb, uh, verb that co-occur with that frame. Um, so it's kind of a more linguistically informed or classic linguistic task that people have been evaluating on. The next milestone that you pick up is sequence-to-sequence models, right? Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Those have been popping up all over the place, not just NLP. Uh, yeah, so, so it's it's really kind of I yeah like in, in doing that review I looked back at the paper again and they in their paper I think mainly evaluated on machine translation which is I think really the kind of the, the biggest um, application um, these kinds of models have been applied to um, but then so yeah so for context sequence to sequence models are essentially um, just a general kind of framework that tries to, tries to map an input sequence so it can be words but can also be any any other type of um, symbols. Uh, to an output sequence using uh, an encoder neural network that encodes this input sequence into a fixed size vector. Um, and then output sequence that, given that vector, generates the target sequence. And yeah, and this has originally been proposed in 2015 for machine translation. But since then, um, basically, a lot of applications in LMP, like as soon as you try to generate a sentence, um, most of these models would try to use um, kind of a sequence-to-sequence um model under the hood yeah so these have been uh, very popular for things like uh, chatbots or uh, even in settings where you don't have an input sequence as your input but just uh, kind of another representation um, like for image co- captioning for instance you can imagine that you can have you have a, um, a cnn model that generates a representation of um, of an image and then based on that you would um use that as initialization for your LSTM and you would then try to generate the caption of that image. Um, so this yeah, kind of uh, framework has really uh, turned out to be very versatile and really um, applicable in a lot of scenarios. You also mentioned attention-based methods. How do those fit into NLP? Um, yeah, so attention probably like everyone who's kind of uh, aware of sequence-to-sequence model probably has all, also heard of attention. So attention um, was kind of is the probably the main improvement that has really allowed uh, machine translation models to um, exceed and uh, overcome um, or outperform um, classic um, phrase-based or statistical machine translation models. Um, and attention really, so as I mentioned before, in classic sequence-to-sequence learning, you would try to have a model that compresses uh, the input sequence into a fixed size vector. Um, but that, if you can imagine for machine translation, if you have a, um, a very long sentence or even entire paragraph that you might want to translate to, um, it can be very hard challenging or it can place a lot of computation burden on the model to try to compress the entire meaning of this paragraph into um, a fixed size vector. Um, And attention essentially um, allows the model to kind of overcome this bottleneck. So in addition to having this fixed size size vector, um, at every step of generating an output symbol, the model can also look back at at kind of the input sequence and at the different hidden states of the input sequence. And essentially, um, it allows the model to instead of having to compress everything into one state, um, essentially um, remember um, kind of the most similar um, past states, uh, which then makes it easier for the model to generate uh, the relevant output. 
And uh, yeah, and attention also is really something that has turned out to be quite flexible. Um, so that is really now used, I think, in, in most sequence-to-sequence -sequence learning tasks um, as well, um, but has also been used in, um, for instance, um, in image captioning. So you could uh, imagine that instead of um, kind of paying attention to different parts of your input sequence, um, when you just try to generate a caption or individual words based on image, you can also pay particular attention to certain parts of that image that might be um, relevant for generating that next word. Um, or, yeah, generally, so I think that nowadays it's really common attention because um, this idea of um, just computing kind of a, a weight or um, kind of a weighted average um, of your input sequence or of certain states based on the similarity, um, so the, the dot product to your current state, um, really has allowed um, kind of models that can um, access memory based on um, similarity to um, kind of the current state, or also these recent um, um, basically kind of state-of-the-art models for machine translation, um, which is a, tr a transformer, uh, which essentially uses um, self-attention. So basically attention not applied to previous sequence, but to the um, sequence uh, itself um, to essentially allow the model to kind of look at and consider the surrounding words and the surrounding context to improve the representation of the current word. And uh, by using multiple layers, this can be done um, multiple times so that you can have a kind of a more contextually sensitive and a hopefully more expressive or better representation of each word in your sentence. Is this related at all to the representations of networks like WaveNet, where you've got like these hierarchical layers that are folding upwards? And does that concept relate to WaveNet, for example? Yeah, so, so basically in um, kind of these convolutional sequence models, um, you get, you can model like um, kind of longer dependencies between different words by essentially stacking um, these convolutional layers on top of each other. Yeah? So as you go higher, each word will be able to kind of access or um, consider um, kind of uh, words that have been come um, more, uh, that have been come, uh, come earlier in the sentence. Yeah? Um, so with just a few layers, um, if you use dilated convolutions, you can have, um, you can, um, uh, you're able to incorporate um, almost the entire sequence length. Um, and with um, attention, essentially, you can do that instead. You don't need to stack layers at all because the attention mask or this attention operation um, allows you to directly look at all of the words in the sentence. Um, so essentially, you kind of have this, um, you have um, like a global context, essentially, at every layer, whereas in this convolutional one, um, at every layer, you have a local context, but which can very quickly scale to a global context. Um, so it's uh, so an attention layer intuitively um, kind of makes it easier to to model this global context, but on the other hand, you miss out on some of this local information again um, because your um, your mask or your attention operation is kind of irrespective of the um, um, of the position of the words. Um, so because of that, people typically use um, kind of an embedding of the um, position or some function that indicates where the word in the sentence is situated um, to be able to kind of model this local context again. When you uh, describe attention, you're talking about this attention mask, which um, essentially kind of weights where you're looking at uh, in the input vectors. Is that the right way to think about it? Um, exactly. So you you generally have some um, some attention weights that you that you compute, and then you do softmax over that. So in the end, you get some um, you essentially get um, kind of a probability distribution that tells you how relevant each of the words are, is, or how similar they are to your current um, input, um, and then. And then in attention, the way these attention weights are computed, that can differ a bit. And that usually includes some, a number of learned parameters so that model can, um, kind of learn to, um, pay attention or with regard to different aspects potentially. And so the, the next milestone on your list are memory based networks. And that's not a term that I've, uh, heard use. What is that referring to? Uh, yeah, so uh, we use that to refer to basically kind of a variety of different um, methods that essentially have some sort of uh, memory mechanism. Yeah, so essentially these methods are um, kind of kind of very similar to um, to attention um, in a way. 
um, in that you can kind of see attention as um, essentially using the past hidden states of your model essentially as a, as a memory or like a lookup table. So by using attention, your model essentially has like a memory that is the size of the input sequence. Um, and these other methods are similar in a way, but some of them um, have um, kind of in addition um, a... Um, kind of a, not only that you're able to read from this memory, but you can also write back at the memory. Um, so probably I think DeepMind, um, they have, or researchers from DeepMind probably have produced most of these um, models that fall under this category with some coming from FAIR as well. And um, yeah, probably one of the most common ones is um, kind of this neural Turing machine, um, which is essentially, which essentially tries to mimic kind of the classic uh, Turing machine, which has like this uh, tape where you can read and write to, and uh, which essentially tries to use um, th this concept and uh, implement that in a neural network by having a memory where you can um, basically read and write to as well with a mechanism that is very similar to um, kind of attention that you can um, basically access content based on, based on similarity, but you can also have um, some uh, location-based addressing in that you kind of know, okay, you're, you've stored this information in a certain um, part of your memory, so you can add, access that based on uh, location as well. Um, and these types of models really are kind of, I found it um, kind of useful to include this um, this particular ca category of models um, because I think um, this, so firstly, because this um, concept of memory is kind of closely tied to attention, but also because I think um, going forward, um, having some sort of memory or some sort of um, kind of additional um, capacity of the model to um, access um, additional information in some form of, uh, or another. So for instance, having access in some way um, to a knowledge base that you can um, that you can kind of query from or or write to as well, or having um, yeah some some kind of more expressive way of storing, remembering, like reading, storing facts that you've that you've read about, and then uh, recalling them. I think um, going forward and really to really. Um, I think we can probably talk about that later in more depth as well. But really to kind of have models that can. Um, kind of reason um, and have better reasoning abilities, we, we need some sort of, um, yeah, some sort of memory or something, some me mechanism that comes at least close to that. Mm. It does seem a bit like the, the previous milestones that you've mentioned, the impacts of those are, are, are fairly clear uh, with these memory-based networks. It's a bit more speculative. Do you feel that way? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, so most of these methods have either been um, evaluated on either kind of synthetic tasks like um, counting, sorting, um, things like that, or on um, so kind of the um, baby data set from, um, from Facebook uh, AI research, which is essentially um, a synthetically generated data set for um, reading comprehension. So essentially they generate um, kind of stories which consist of different sentences, um, which involve multiple actors and kind of an object such as, as people moving a ball or bringing the ball to different rooms. And in the end, the question would be, okay, where's the ball? And uh, yeah, so most of these methods have been incorporated on, on this data set, um, which is yeah quite synthetic in the way it was created. So, and in practice, people haven't really seen them scale too well to kind of more realistic data sets. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's really safe to say that so far, kind of the impact was probably limited. Um, but I think kind of this, um, yeah, this mechanism, I think, is, is promising for the future. Uh, and so that brings us to 2018, the last milestone on your list, which is pre-trained language models and more generally the idea of being able to apply transfer learning, which we've seen a ton of success with in the image domain to NLP. Uh, and you've done quite a bit in that space. You know, tell us about what you've seen in that space uh, that kind of inspired you to um, start working in that area. Um, yeah, so, so for, for me personally, so maybe I came on that from, from two directions. So first in my personal research, um, as I've worked on different tasks and kind of developing different um, like domain annotation, multitask learning methods for different tasks, um, 
that were like usually task specific and try to incorporate some features of the target task. Um, kind of the logical or kind of the natural progression in that was really trying to work on kind of this more general um, inductive transfer learning setting essentially, where you try to use some sort of pre-trained knowledge and um, generalize or use that to do better on an arbitrary target task essentially. So in in that context, you really want to have some. Um, some pre-training tasks or some existing information that is um, as general as possible so that it will be likely useful for kind of any number of target tasks, essentially. Um, and then in the second direction, um, I've also been really following a lot of the progress um, made in uh, in computer vision. And uh, I've yeah just really been fascinated or um, uh, I found it really cool to see that um, how um, yeah, transfer learning was really um, kind of commonplace there and really um, used uh, a lot in practice and by um, practitioners in computer vision that was really uh, yeah, very easy to um, build models or to just um, collect a few hundred um, images um, for different classes that you care about, use a pre-trained model, fine-tune those on those images, and you could really already get um, reasonable performance. And I found that really um, kind of a factor that I think made it easy for a lot of people to just um, experiment or develop their own computer vision models. And um, I really wanted to have something or I really found, thought it would be very useful to have something similar um, for natural language as well, where you can uh, similarly create, um, collect a few um, hundred label examples uh, and train your own models for your own uh, tasks that you care about. And kind of in uh, thinking about that, um, essentially, uh, I started um, kind of talking with uh, Jeremy Howard from FastAI as well, who had been thinking along similar directions. And uh, concurrently, there's been um, some um, uh, related work coming out from uh, the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence as well. And so it really started to crystallize that um, a kind of a, yeah, like the ideal or a useful pre-trained task for that would really be language modeling because that's already been used as a um, kind of as a successful variant uh, in uh, with Word2Vec, because um, all Word2Vec does is essentially kind of a variation of language modeling. But instead of using that just to initialize the, the first layer of our models with word embeddings, why don't we just um, pre-train um, a language model uh, and use that to initialize the, the remaining parameters of our models? Um, and that really kind of was... Um, yeah, like this this overall direction wasn't really like wasn't completely new. So in 2015, there was like the first um, the first paper which actually used language models and, and fine tuned those um, on the target task. And we essentially kind of took that a step further, added like a, a step where we pre-trained that on a on a general domain corpus, and then proposed some other techniques um, to improve the the fine tuning performance or to kind of um, uh, to retain as much information as possible during this fine-tuning process. I guess when we're talking about transfer learning, there's two pieces. One is being able to use models that are created by third parties, presumably on other data sets. And the other element is this ability to kind of fine-tune it to meet your specific needs. With kind of that in mind, like, do you consider word embeddings to be transfer learning, you know, certainly we share like glove vectors and things like that. They definitely meet that first criteria, but maybe not the second. Is that the key distinction that you make? Um, so, so I definitely think what uh, using like pre-trained word embeddings is is one form of transfer learning. Yeah, so it's one one way or kind of a very simple way to use existing uh, pre-trained knowledge. Yeah, and um, and kind of using pre-trained language model, models in, in the asset is really kind of an an additional step or you yeah you basically use kind of that knowledge um and for additional input in your in your uh, in your model either to initialize more more layers or you use kind of these richer um these embeddings from language models which just capture um, richer relations than you could um you could capture with word embeddings um, so both are kind of um, forms of transfer learning, but I think using language models goes kind of a, a step further than uh, just using word embeddings. When you say language models, what specifically are you referring to? Uh, when I think of language models, I think of things like LDA. Uh, is that what you're referring to, or are you speaking about them more broadly? 
Um, so LDA, so latent uh, Dirichlet allocation, is is an example of topic modeling. Yeah, so topic modeling is typically just used for like data exploration, where you have um, like a corpus and you want to um, find out what people are talking about in there. Yeah, so that generally gives you like a list of topics. Um, and uh, so language modeling, when people talk about language modeling, is really so language modeling really is the task of um, you have a sequence of words, um, like a sentence, um, and you want to predict the next word in that sequence. So it's a very clearly um, defined task, yeah, and it's because you only need um, kind of the raw text data essentially. Um, so given the text, you can always you, you always know what the next word is that you want to predict. So you can very easily train this kind of model on uh, large amounts of data. The typical approach to solving this kind of task would be like an LSTM. Uh, yeah, so the typical model um, really these days, so the more traditional model, so stepping back a bit, the more traditional model would be um, kind of using, uh, basically using n-grams, so using kind of different um, different uh, windows of, of words and then um computing the next word or predicting the next word based on um, how what words you've seen co-occur with your existing uh, n-grams, essentially. And then these these days, um, yeah, you have kind of a typical language model would be in LSTM, maybe with uh, multiple layers. Um, and yeah, so that would kind of be the most typical one. People have used um, other models as well using um, using memory or kind of other variations on, the, on this classic LSTM. Um, but recently, actually, people showed that if you're just a bit more careful about um, tuning the hyperparameters of your LSTM, um, you can actually get very good performance just using very like a classic LSTM for language modeling. And so the method that you came up with with Jeremy is called ULM fit. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, how it works and the approach you took there. Uh, sure. Um, so, yeah, so our intuition was really with that method that instead of um, initializing only the first layer of the model with word embeddings, we really want to have something with which we can initialize um, our entire model so that we, in the end, um, can take our pre-trained language model and we just need to put a new layer, um, like a new layer for the classification task on top. Um, and essentially, our kind of method we propose here consists of um, three steps. Um, so we first just train um, kind of a classic LSTM language model on a large um, general domain corpus. So we really want to have a um, kind of a corpus that can capture very general um, domain knowledge. And um, for that, we just used um, kind of a, a corpus a subset of Wikipedia that is quite commonly used um, for language model evaluation and training um, as well. Um, and then in the second step, you want to get this language model to kind of learn about some of the char characteristics of the data or of the corpus you actually care about. So in that second step, we then um, fine-tune this language model. So still um, the same language model, only we can just continue training it on data of our new classification tasks. So for instance, if we want to do a movie review classification based on positive or negative reviews, uh, we would just fine tune that and continue training it on um, movie reviews of that domain. Um, and for that step, essentially, um, we realized that we, we don't really want to um, train the model, like use too high of a learning rate or you want to kind of be careful in how you train the model so you, that you don't actually accidentally overwrite the information that your general language model has already uh, captured before. Um, so we essentially proposed kind of two different uh, techniques, a certain uh, learning rate schedule and um, using different learning rates for different layers, essentially for the model to allow to retain as much of the general information from the general language model as possible and kind of only adapt the, the higher layers of the model for um, the current, uh, the new domain. Um, because our intuition was with that, that from um, computer vision, people have shown that essentially um, uh, the, the lowest layers of the model really capture the most uh, general information. So in the lowest layers, you really have information about the, the edges and um, kind of very um, general features. And as you go higher, the information gets more specific to the task. For ImageNet, you would have the higher layers really responding to particular parts of dogs or dog noses even. So the information as you go higher in the model gets more task-specific. Um, and in NLP, people actually now recently have started to show that um, there's like a similar hierarchy of um, information in a neural model that was trained in text. So because of that, our intuition was really that we want to retain as much of the information in the lower layers as possible 
and then use higher learning rates for the higher layers to um, adapt them to a larger extent. Um, and then in the final step, we essentially um, remove the, the softmax layer that was used for the language modeling objective and replace that with um, a layer, so just um, softmax cross-entropy layer that just tries to predict the, the target classes um, for our task. And we just um, train that new layer um, on, on top of, uh, together with the remaining language model. And here, in addition to the two previous techniques, um, we also propose to make it a bit easier for the model to adapt the top layer to the, um, which is randomly initialized to the other parameters which have already been trained. Um, so we initially, um, only train the top layer and freeze the remaining layers. And then at each subsequent epoch, um, unfreeze, um, another layer from the top down to make it kind of easier for the model to adapt the new parameters to the ones, to the existing ones that have already been trained. Well, there's a lot there. So first, let's maybe start by noting that the method is specifically kind of targeting the, this a classification type of a task as opposed to you know, predicting the next word or a generation type of task. Where do you see those classification tasks come up? Um, yes, so we, we decided to initially focus on classification just because we thought that was um, kind of the most, or those had like the most real-world applications. Um, so, yeah, so, so from... Yeah, kind of a lot of a lot of applications from uh, yeah classifying uh, chat logs, customer customer request, requests in different categories, routing those um, to different to relevant entities um, in legal classifying different legal documents um, depending on different uh, yeah different fields um, yeah so so I think classification is really something as soon as uh, as soon as you have some uh, some sort of text that is generated and you want to have some um, information that you want to filter out that can be expressed as a classification task if you just um, are able just to define a certain number of categories that you want to express. Um, or similarly, a lot of other tasks like even doing um, sequence labeling or so can also be expressed as classification. So we found that uh, by focusing on classification first, um, we can really cover a lot of um, a lot of the real-world applications of NLP. And then you mentioned that Recent research has shown that in neural networks that are kind of language models, there's a similar phenomenon to what we've seen in computer vision, where the lower layers are more general. Uh, on the computer vision side, yeah, we've got some intuitive ways of explaining that and talking about low-level features like edges and textures and things like that as being found in these lower layers. Is there a similar clean way to explain what we're seeing in the NLP side? Yeah, so so there's not so it's it's a bit um, so in computer vision it's always nice that you, can, that you can actually get some sort of like intuitive feeling by visualizing that um, in NLP it's not exactly as straightforward um, so but it's still somewhat intuitive so the so so far I think there's been um, kind of two ways in which people have shown that there's like some hierarchy uh, first when you do multitask learning with different uh, NLP tasks so multitask learning is when you have when you share, when you have one model that performs uh, multiple tasks at the same time. And then if you have your model, um, if you train a model with some um, kind of higher level or more semantic task, like named entry recognition, and if you train that um, together with um, another task that is more um, syntactic, so kind of a more lower level linguistically, like a part of speech tagging, uh, then people have shown then uh, that actually information that is relevant for the part of speech checking tasks, so information that kind of maximizes the performance on that task, was actually captured at uh, lower level, uh, lower layers of the model. Whereas for named anterior condition, the information would be contained on a in a higher in a higher level layer. Um, and then more recently, in this um, kind of in uh, some papers from uh, AI2, um, where they had, uh, so in their um, ELMO paper and then in a follow-up paper as well, they showed that in having these um, embeddings that were pre-trained uh, or trained in a language model, um, if you use um, just, um, if you use lower layer, lower level layers of your model, then those actually give you the best performance for lower level tasks, like part of speech tracking, whereas for higher higher uh, level tasks, you um, the most the best information is contained in higher layers of the model. 
Um, so, so far, yeah, so really the best way is to look at kind of a downstream task that encodes some sort of, um, some level of hierarchy and then basically generalize from that. So, yeah, so, so, so far we haven't really, there has not been a kind of more intuitive or like a more easily accessible way by just defining a task that kind of encodes some assumption or something that you want to measure and then measure the performance of different layers of the, the model on that task. And then you mentioned that the ULM fit method includes some specific guidance around like setting your learning rates and learning rate scheduling and things like this. Uh, on the computer vision side, these types of things are often done very iteratively via experimentation to, to determine, you know, what the right learning rates are and how to schedule your learning rates or apply learning rates to different layers is what you're saying here that you can be more prescriptive about it because of some characteristic of the problem or just that you should take that kind of a, an approach when training these models? Um, yeah, so we, we tried to come up with a... So, I mean, the way we arrived at these methods were also uh, basically based on experimentation and trial and error on kind of our validation data as well. Um, but we essentially, or kind of the parameters we arrived at, we found them to perform well on different or kind of a variety of text classification um, problems. So it's really kind of more of a guidance of, okay, these are like good kind of rules of thumb or like a good range of uh, parameters that give um, that give good results in general. But then obviously for, for particular domains or particular tasks, it might still be useful to do some, um, some fine tuning of these parameters or to slightly change them and, and see um, particularly playing around with like the learning rate and um, kind of the number of epochs you train a model um, can still give you a boost in performance. And so what kind of results have you seen with uh, this approach? Um, so, so with this, um, so with our approach that we proposed, we essentially were able to outperform the state of the art on um, kind of a number of widely studied uh, text classification datasets, and that was um, particularly kind of exciting and encouraging for us um, because on a lot of these datasets, um, um, some of the architectures were really had either a lot of um, feature or architecture engineering, whereas we um, really used a very simple. Um, uh, LSTM with just different numbers of dropouts and um, only this um, kind of pre-training step, um, essentially. Um, so it was really encouraging that, um, yeah, this very simple model was really able to outperform the state of the art on, on a variety of benchmarks. Um, and then I think to me personally, uh, very exciting was just to see that this type of approach um, even trained on um, a limited number of examples. So we basically did some ablation studies where we trained it on um, smaller training set sizes going from 100 to, um, yeah, to in different steps to 1,000, 10,000 uh, number of examples. And we really saw that just by virtue of using this pre-trained um, information and pre-trained language model, we were actually really able to um, outperform kind of training a model from scratch on the same number of examples by an order of magnitude. Um, or we were able to reach the same performance as a model that was trained from scratch on kind of an order of magnitude more data. And I think this this particular finding, and that's something that um, not only we, but um, um, kind of other researchers working in kind of a similar direction of using language modeling have found. And uh, yeah, for, for me personally, I think that's very encouraging um, because I think this will really help to unlock um, a lot of the kind of potential for NLP and just make it easier for people to use it on, on their own data sets and just should make it easier for people to just collect a small number of examples and then train and apply these kind of models to their data. Are there any qualitative comparisons you can make between transfer learning in computer vision and transfer learning in NLP based on this approach? So um, so I think maybe one, one comparison is that what we initially tried and what is um, kind of commonly done in computer vision is that you only train, you kind of freeze your um, entire network and you only train like the, the topmost layer from scratch or you only unfreeze like a couple of the, the top layers of the model. Um, but really for us in... Um, at least at the moment, because the models people are using right now are still quite a bit more shallow than um, kind of typical models like ResNet or DenseNet that you would use for transferring computer vision. Um, so we really still found it useful to kind of train um, the entire model or to fine tune the entire model. 
at the same time, we've seen or in the community, um, kind of one of the most promising approaches is um, this ELMO approach from AI2. And they actually use or take kind of an orthogonal approach where they don't fine tune the model, but use the embeddings from the language model um, kind of as fixed features in a, in a um, kind of in a separate model that is still trained from scratch. So you kind of have your existing um, architecture and you just add the embedding that you get from your language model for each word as an additional feature um, uh, as input. Um, and they, they um, yeah, uh, were able to achieve kind of very good and state-of-the-art performance on um, a large variety of tasks as well. And um, Kind of recently comparing, so in some uh, ongoing work comparing against the approach, we actually find that um, they're very kind of those. So um, our fine tuning approach versus just using the fixed features like an Elmo is quite uh, achieves about like a similar performance. Um, whereas in computer vision, really the um, kind of the prevalent or the uh, current paradigm really seems that people are just um, fine tuning these models instead of using them as fixed features. So I think it's still, um, yeah, so I think we'll still, so that's an ongoing research direction essentially um, to see what is kind of the best way going forward really to do this sort of fine tuning in NLP. Do we want to use, uh, do we want to use fine tuning or do we want to use fixed features or maybe a combination of the two and what are actually, yeah, what are like the pros and cons of that? And in your work, did you train from scratch your pre-trained language model that you then use later on to apply to different tasks or did you uh was that already available for you um so we we trained on language model from scratch so we trained uh, yeah we we, uh, we tried or experimented with different ways to train the initial language model as well um yeah just because we wanted to observe the effect of the data um on the language model um but yeah, there's like different types of um, tasks. Like, um, so we trained on the subset of Wikipedia, but Elmo, for instance, was trained on kind of a larger uh, news corpus. Um, and um, they used, I think, like a pre-trained language model that was available online. And more recently, there's been some work from uh, OpenAI, where they also trained a language model that was based on this transformer architecture from machine translation on an even uh, larger corpus. Um, so and it's still not entirely clear how those different what the actual impact or how much of an, of a benefit it gives you when training on like a larger corpus. Um, I think one hypothesis might be that training on training a more expressive model on more data, as we've kind of seen over the history of deep learning, that might work better in the long term. Um, but we still need to kind of figure out what actually the uh, the best ways to do that. And out of curiosity, what uh, kind of order of magnitude were you experiencing in terms of training time for these models? Um, so in terms of training the initial, so training the first uh, uh, language model on the large corpus or fine-tuning the language model? or uh, Well, both. Um, so yeah, so, so it kind of depends on your, um, like on the approach. So when we trained our language model, um, because the initial, like this pre-training step, because you have, um, a very, like a lot of tokens, uh, a large corpus that you train on, that's usually the most expensive step. So for us in our early experiments, we trained that about for like 24 hours on one uh, GPU essentially. And then usually the, the fine tuning um, and the final training step would be a lot faster. So maybe it would be like uh, one hour depending on the training set size. Um, in their OpenAI paper, because they trained an even larger model on even more data, they trained for about a, a month. Um, so you can really, if you scale that up, um, that can take a lot longer, but then fine tuning would probably um, take similarly long, maybe a bit longer because, because the model is steeper. Um, and recently, kind of in the FastCI library, um, with some ongoing experience from computer vision, um, they've kind of integrated some methods where you can train um, uh, which are kind of, um, there's like one technique called uh, superconvergence that has shown um, some good results for computer vision, where you essentially have a, a particular learning rate schedule and you train your model with a very high learning rate. Um, and in doing that, and if you're kind of careful about how you use the schedule, you can get to very high performance uh, very fast. Um, so using like a technique like that might also um for language modeling might also allow you to train your language models um, yeah, significantly faster. With word embeddings, we've kind of, you know, those have matured and we've gotten to the point that there are, you know, multiple options for word embedding vectors that you can more or less use interchangeably. 
is that the case for these pre-trained language models? Like, can you use either the OpenAI language models or what you've published kind of interchangeably in building out models and just experiment to see what works best for you? Or are they... Are the the language models more, you know, intertwined to how they are intended to be used? Um, yeah, so, so in a sense, you can still, um, you can basically kind of use them interchangeably at this point. Um, although, so we've recently seen, or there, there's been uh, like a recent paper, which showed, okay, there's maybe some, um, differences in the representation that these models learn, so that on on some tasks, actually having um, using uh, like an LSTM in um, in contrast to a uh, transformer as language model might actually give you better performance. But then you have the transformer, which might be maybe more uh, efficient than the um, LSTM because it doesn't require this uh, temporal dependency. But this is again like still very preliminary work. Um, so I don't think yeah. So I don't think at this point we really have a a, a great understanding yet for which type of tasks um, these particular models work um, work really well. Um, but I think what you want, uh, so as long as you have um, a model, like an, a language model that is very expressive, that achieves kind of a good um, performance on your um, data, then I think generally you would probably expect to get similar performance. And then probably going forward, there might be some particular guidance on maybe if you have a sort of uh, like reasoning task or um, something which requires maybe more long-term um, dependencies, maybe you would rather want to use a transformer, um, but that's still a bit uh, early stage to give kind of these more um, more concrete rules of them. Have we covered all there is to cover on ULM fit uh, and, and, you know, and or, you know, what's next in kind of that research direction? Um, yeah, so so I think in that in that research direction, I think there's uh, like a, a lot of interesting directions. So first, I don't think we've yet kind of come to the ceiling of what we can achieve um, using language models in NLP. So I think so. I, I personally think that um, because of the the results we've seen so far, are really encouraging and really significant improvements of what we've seen before. Um, people are gonna. Um, start using more and more instead of using pre-trained word embeddings, using um, pre-trained language models in their own applications. So I think these will really come be, kind of become a, a mainstay in NLP going forward, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and in in that, I think there's still yeah, a lot of questions on how you actually um, how you can um, kind of compress and capture as much information in your language model as before uh, as possible. What are like the best language models to use? How you can incorporate data in that? So just um, kind of uh, maximizing the benefit from using this language modeling task, I think, is kind of the near to like near term direction that will still or should still give us some some boosts in some tasks. Um, and then probably in the in the more long term, um, and, and then kind of maybe tied to the former. Um, uh, just understanding what actually um, this or how far we can actually go using these language models, um, because language modeling might, um, while it still while it gives us a boost on some tasks, it's still a similar objective to what we've been doing with Word2Vec, and just kind of this idea of language modeling of just um, predicting the next word based on its previous words. Um, is while it should give you kind of some, um, should capture some relations in text, there's still a lot of things that it uh, can't capture. So it's, um, yeah, for instance, it's really hard to capture um, kind of more like real world knowledge actually about how the how the world works or how different um, kind of entities or things in the in the real world um, kind of relate to each other is really hard it's often not mentioned in text and then only like uh, very rarely so it's really hard to capture something like that which would be really useful for tasks like question answering or reading comprehension with just using language model so I think one really interesting direction going forward is really how we can um, incorporate um, information that allows us to do better sorts of reasoning and natural language understanding either in order to augment our language model or um, as additional forms of pre-training maybe or maybe additional forms of knowledge as um, a, like in the memory from a knowledge base or through some other module that we can then um, use or leverage in our uh, downstream tasks. Uh, well, Sebastian, thanks so much for taking the time to chat about this. Uh, it's really interesting work you're doing, and I'm looking forward to kind of keeping up with how it evolves. 
Uh, cool. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Sebastian or any of the topics covered in this episode, visit twimmelaicom slash talk slash 195. If you're a fan of the show and you haven't already done so or you're a new listener and you like what you hear, please head over to your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews help inspire us to create more and better content, and they help new listeners find the show. Thanks again to our friends at IBM for their sponsorship of this episode. Be sure to check out IBM Developer at ibm.biz slash podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.